As you're taking your seats, let me encourage you to grab your Bibles and open them up to the book of Acts, chapter 27. We're back in the book of Acts, uh, specifically in Acts chapter 27. Actually, there's only two chapters left in the book of Acts, which means our time is coming to a close. And uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm in one sense saddened by that. I've been really blessed and encouraged, but I'm excited to see what God has next for us. And I was thinking a little bit, it's fitting, you know, coming back from Romania, and th- by the way, thank you for your prayers. I'm going to give you a little bit of an update on what God is doing in Romania at the end of the service, but it's fitting, I think, at least for my heart, as I come back from Romania, I get my feet planted back on the ground here. As we get to the end of the book of Acts, I've been reminded about the very purpose and reason for the book of Acts. It is to see the gospel moving forward. To go, as you remember, as the Spirit of God led Luke to pen these words in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is the goal of the church. This is God's plan for the church of Jesus Christ. It's that the gospel would be taken through the church to the end of the earth, and that has been the way that the book of Acts has been unfolding before our very eyes. We are watching this mission statement in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 actually being fleshed out from page to page to page all the way through the end of the book where we will see that the Apostle Paul, as he makes his way to Rome, the goal of Paul's ministry is the very goal of Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is to get the gospel to the end of the earth. And so our final mini-series, as we wrap up this book, we're going to have four sermons left in the book of Acts. Our final mini-series is called To the End of the Earth. This really, chapters 27 and 28, recounts the final leg of Paul's journey. In fact, if you're with me in Acts chapter 27, before we read there, I want to remind you of chapter 26, verse 32, the, the very... Verse previous to chapter 27, these words were written by Luke. It says, And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. It's a powerful reminder of where we find ourselves situated in the book of Acts and in the life and ministry of the apostle Paul. It reminds us that Paul, remember, he's been imprisoned, he's been arrested, he's been on trial for the cause of Jesus Christ and the sake of the gospel. And here what we see is that Luke sees fit to remind us that as Paul goes on this final leg of his journey, he does so in chains for Jesus Christ. It's reminded me as I've been studying through and reading it over and mulling it over in my heart and mind this week that following Jesus Christ is not the easy road, but is so very often the hard road. Paul's journey to Rome is something that God has called him to regardless of the cost involved, and it's something that Paul has been willing to do. He's been willing to walk the path that God has laid out before him He's getting toward the end of his ministry, and many of us, as we look at the end of our lives and the end of maybe even our, our, our ministry involvement, one of the things we might be inclined to think is, well, great, now it's time for retirement. It's the time where we get to kick our feet up. You know, we, we put in our dues, our time, our effort, and our energy, and what we see happening in the, the life of the Apostle Paul at the end of his life, rather than things winding down, they seem in one sense to be ramping up. The intensity of the opposition seems to be escalating not de-escalating. 
as we look at Paul's journey toward Rome, we need to be reminded that this is, in one sense, an unconventional way of moving the gospel to the end of the earth. But it is God's way. It is very true, isn't it, as Isaiah says, that God's ways are not our ways. Quite literally, if you look at Paul's journey, you can say that God's ways are not our ways. If we had the opportunity to plan out our path and our way of moving the gospel forward, it would very often look not just different from God's way, it would very often fall exactly opposite of God's way. We would so often choose the easy, the comfortable, and the painless way, like a cruise through the Caribbean. God so often chooses the hard, challenging, and painful way, which feels more like a rowboat in a hurricane. Why does God see fit to move the gospel forward in this manner, in this way? The primary reason is that God wants to put us in situations that only he can fix. He wants to put us in predicaments, in dilemmas, that are clearly outside the bounds of our own power and ability to make our way through and come out on the other end victorious. God wants to do this in order to put his sovereign saving power on full display. He wants the glory. The second reason that God often chooses these unconventional ways for us is that God wants us to grow in our faith. He wants to grow us so that our faith is strengthened, our confidence and our courage is deepened, and our usefulness is increased. On our journey through this life, and specifically, listen, this morning, on our journey in following Jesus, we will often encounter challenges. Challenges from outside of us and challenges from within us. We'll face difficulty and danger. We'll face distress, and oftentimes we'll face despair. When God leads us down these roads, when we experience this kind of a progression from pain that we'll see in this text, the question for all of us this morning is this, what will we do? When things don't go the way we planned, when it's not the road that we saw coming, what will we do? What will we do? First, I wanna suggest to you this, that when I am faced with difficulty, here's the question we need to answer, who will I follow? When I'm faced with difficulty in this life and especially in following Jesus, who will I follow? Verse one, look at it with me in chapter 27. It says, and when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in the ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. Pause there. Again, we're reminded that Paul is technically right now a prisoner. He's being transported as a prisoner. What's worse is that Luke reminds us is that he could have gone free if he had simply appealed to Caesar. He could have been let go, and all of this in one sense was unnecessary from a human perspective, but we know that his freedom means very little, for he finds himself a slave of Jesus Christ. 
His chains are a constant reminder of the cost of following Jesus. It's a cost he has willingly embraced. And even in these circumstances, one of the things I love is that Luke, remember Luke is with Paul as Paul is on this journey. Luke reminds us of the little glimpses of grace and kindness that God so often provides that we so often need to make it through the difficult moments in life, don't we? When things are difficult, there's nothing more life-giving than seeing a glimpse of God's grace, of his kindness and his care, sometimes in very unexpected ways. And so here's Paul being transported as a prisoner. And I love that Luke points out, and I think very intentionally, verse three, that while they were um, in one, one, moving from one place to the next, the next day we put it aside, and then Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends. You know, one of the sweetest gifts God gives us in our times of difficulty are people to surround us and love us and support us. Isn't that true? There's perhaps nothing more important than navigating life's difficulties and challenges than having good, godly friends who love us and can lift us up when we are down. And Luke just very subtly in one sense points out that here we see Paul being cared for and being given permission to be cared for by somebody who shouldn't really have cared, but you know who did care? God cared. God cared. Even in hard circumstances, God is gracious and I think sometimes we can be so fixated on our difficulties that we fail to see the little graces, little kindnesses, little areas of care that God provides. You know, it's never as bad as we think it is, especially if we're paying attention to the little ways God is trying to show us his grace. There's always something to be thankful for in the midst of difficulties, and Luke pulls this out in verse 3. Verse four through eight, you'll notice it's framed, I just wanna give you the heads up, in such a way as to make us realize that all is not well ahead. Trouble lies ahead, difficulty is coming. You thought things were bad before, well guess what? Verse four says, in putting out to sea, from there we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds, notice these words, the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. Notice again these words, we sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus and as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete of Solomon, coasting along it with difficulty. We came to a place called Fair Havens near which was the city of Lycia. You notice that emphasis as I read through it, those key words indicate that there is trouble ahead. They sailed slowly, it's mentioned a number of different times, with difficulty, the wind was against them, they couldn't get further along than they had planned. Everything was log jammed. The repetition is there to emphasize this simple point that this journey will be filled with difficulty. You know, there's a common misconception in the Christian life. It's that, it's that most people believe it should actually be easy. Where this came from, I'm not sure, but I'm certain of this. You cannot find it in the Bible. Every uh, summer, I have the privilege of getting to do a, a handful of weddings, and I was reminded yesterday, I got to officiate over a wedding from a, a sweet couple in our church family. 
And uh, I, I always, in the premarital counseling and, and getting them prepared for marriage, and even on their wedding day, I like to remind them that a marriage is so often very difficult. And for those of us who are married, we kind of get that. But, you know, every once in a while, a young couple comes into my office all googly-eyed and in love. And uh, when I share that with them, it's shocking to them. They, they actually think I'm crazy. You know, they think that, that life is just going to be amazing. You know, two star-crossed lovers, they gaze longingly into each other's eyes. And, and, you know, all of life will be bliss. But the problem is with it, when you take one sinner and marry it to another sinner, um, it doesn't equal a positive. Oftentimes, it equals a lot of negative. And especially if you produce a whole bunch of other little sinners. I always like to remind people that a good marriage is hard work. It's a really simple principle, but that's the reality. Good marriages never happen by accident. Good relationships in general never happen by accident. It is always intentional effort, hard work, doing the right things consistently. It was Theodore Roosevelt, the great theologian, a kid, He said this, nothing in the world is worth having or worth doing unless it means effort, pain, difficulty. He said, I never in my life envied a human being who led an easy life. I have envied a great many people who led difficult lives and led them well. You know, nobody really has an easy life. But it's true, isn't it, that we admire and we respect those who are able to navigate the difficulties of life. They're able to do the hard things and they're able to make it through on the other side to go through life well. You know, I was thinking about Jesus when he bids a man or woman to come and follow him. He calls him to count the cost over and over and over again. We hear these phrases given by Jesus. Count the cost when you're coming to follow me. Make sure you know what you're getting into. You know, Jesus never painted the picture that the Christian life was going to be a life of ease and comfort and tranquility. He painted just the opposite picture. And so it's astounding to me that so often we think things should be so much easier in following Jesus than they really are. You know, we need to make sure our expectations are guided and driven by the word of God. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and look at this, the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Jesus warns you, listen, not only in the moment of salvation and coming to Christ and giving up everything to follow him, not only then, but listen, on that road towards our final day of salvation, it is not an easy road, it is a hard road. The question is always, when I am faced with difficulty, who will I follow? Will I look to Jesus? Will I look to him and see that he walked the hard road before me? There was no harder road that could be walked than Jesus Christ. He was the only one who walked a road of suffering all the way to a cross where he would hang on a cross of wood and die for the sins of the world. He was the one who walked the hardest road of all. And if I am willing to follow him, I must also look to him for everything I need on this Christian journey. Paul faithfully followed Jesus no matter where that path led, as he's passed on from one city and one port to the next, put on one boat to the next, 
I want to encourage you, church, listen, when we are faced with difficulty, we need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Whether the wind is at our back or the wind is in our face, may we follow him faithfully. Secondly, when I'm faced with danger, how will I respond? Again, I want you to see the progression that's taking place through this text. It begins with this place of difficulty. You know, the wind's in our face. But it progresses to a a deeper level of difficulty. It progresses to a place of actual danger, legitimate danger. In fact, verse 9 says, since much time had passed and the voyage was now, look at this, dangerous. Because even the fast was already over. Paul advised them saying, sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss. Not only for the cargo, or of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there. On the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. The difficulty in our lives can quickly progress towards danger. Here they've chosen to travel at a bad time. It's not the ideal season of travel. That's what Luke is intentionally trying to point out for us here. There's a reason why the wind is driving them back. There's a reason why it's progressing slowly. There's a reason why they have to keep pulling over and changing ships and rethinking how they're going to get there. They've chosen to travel at a terrible time, seasonally. This is a very bad time. And and he indicates, he gives us a time marker in terms of how bad of a season this is. He says that the fast was already over. There was only one fast on the Jewish calendar that applied to the whole nation of Israel, was the day of atonement. Again, it's simply a time stamp that he's giving us. He's telling us that they, they've chosen a really poor time to travel. Paul's perception is likely, by the way, as he, he, you'll notice his perception into, you know, he's perceived that the, this is going to be a really bad plan to keep moving forward. This is going to come with much loss and much injury, not just to the cargo, but to our very lives. This perception that Paul has is probably twofold. It's probably natural in the one sense where he's able to, you know, read the waves just like everybody else and read the weather patterns and think, you know what, this is a bad plan. But I think it's more than that. I think it's also supernatural. I think he has a supernatural insight into the danger of this voyage. I think when he speaks of the injury and much loss to the cargo ship and lives, he wants them to know just how serious it is to keep moving in this direction because God has seen fit to reveal to him how serious this could be. You know, following Jesus can lead us right into danger, you know. I I think of Jesus in John chapter 6 pushing his disciples out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. Do you remember that? And what's so fascinating is he's not with them, but as he shoves them out into the sea, uh, you know, he knows what awaits them. He knows that he's pushing them out in the ocean all by themselves without him, and he knows that what awaits them is a massive storm where they are going to be fearful for their very lives. You know, they're simply doing exactly what Jesus told them to do, and because they're being faithful to follow him, they find themselves in a place of danger. 
Paul. Paul finds himself right now in chains on a boat in the middle of a potential storm, a potential disaster. Listen, only because he has chosen to faithfully follow Jesus. He's not backed down when things got difficult and things got hard. He hasn't thrown the towel in. He hasn't kind of you know, cried when, when things were difficult and hard. He said, I'm going to continue to follow Jesus Christ wherever that may lead, including danger. That was the life of the Apostle Paul. I mean, so much so that in 2 Corinthians, Paul, when he describes his life, again, a familiar passage. I know you, you know this passage, many of you do so well. Paul is defending his legitimacy as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And what he does is he, he shows the marks of an apostle by pointing to the dangers that have characterized his very life. Here's the evidence. You want to know that I'm truly a servant of Christ, he says? Look what I've endured for the cause of Christ. And he says, are they servants of Christ? Speaking of these false apostles who uh, were trying to deceive the people in the church in Corinth, he says, I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labor, labors. Paul says, look, he says, you want to know the mark of someone who is faithfully following Christ? He says, I was one with far greater labors. Just listen to this, this list. Far more imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. We're going to see that at the end of this chapter. On frequent journeys, listen to this, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardships, through many a sleepless night, I bet, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from the other things, there is the daily pressure of me, on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Uh, there's, my, um, there's the evidence of what it means to be a true servant of Christ. Paul's in danger in one sense because he is following Christ, but in a whole nother sense, these sailors are in danger because they have chosen not to follow Jesus. Notice that they choose, even in this section here of chapter 27, they choose not to pay attention to Paul. Now, I don't know if you can fault them for that. He, he is a prisoner after all. They turn to people who should know of the right answers. They turn to the, the wise ones of the world, the pilot and the owner of the ship. You'd think that they know a little bit something about navigating in difficult weather, what the best option would be. Paul's just a prisoner. He's just a Jewish rabbi, and why would we listen to him anyway? But what's interesting here is that Paul, as we know, Paul does not simply speak on his own accord. What Paul offers is not his own personal opinion or his own personal counsel. Paul stands speaking on behalf of God and he offers to them essentially divine wisdom and divine counsel. God, listen, in his mercy and grace is speaking through Paul to these pagan Gentiles. God in his mercy and grace is reaching out into the darkness of these sailors' lives and he is offering to them hope. Do you see this? He's offering to them a rescue plan. He's trying to protect and preserve them. God is. God in his grace is giving these sinners a choice. I'll often 
speak to people who are going through challenging situations and difficult circumstances, and a lot of times even unbelievers, you know, simple little conversations where you're having these conversations and they begin to just pour their heart out about how hard their life is and some of the trials and devastating things they're going through. And, and oftentimes they'll, they'll just say, I just don't understand what's happening. And oftentimes, honestly, if the situation's right, I'll look right at them and say, I know, I know exactly what's going on. God is trying to get your attention right now. What are you talking about? What do, you, what do you mean? Well, this is the way God so often gets our attention. He throws us in the middle of a place of extreme danger or extreme difficulty because he's trying to grab a hold of us and shake us up and he's trying to show us, listen, you're desperately in need of someone greater than yourself. This is way more than you can handle. This life is way more than you can handle. God offers a choice. Behind door number one, there's safety and security. Behind door number two, there's danger and disaster. And here they choose door number two. They reject God's counsel. And what's so interesting here, if you think about it in these terms, they're rejecting God's counsel in favor of human wisdom. And how often are we faced with the same kinds of choices? Just in life in general, we're, 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 we're going down the road of life, we're, we're trying to faithfully follow Jesus, and we find ourselves at a fork in the road, and we realize that we have an option, that God is giving us a choice. We can choose God's way, or we can choose the world's way. We can choose God's wisdom, or we can choose the world's wisdom. Maybe it's in the workplace, maybe you're looking towards some career advancement, and you have an opportunity to move yourself up the ladder, but it will require you to sacrifice your integrity. Maybe it will require you to sacrifice your family and the precious time that you have with them. Maybe it will require you to step on people to get ahead yourself. And the world and its wisdom would say, do whatever is best for you. But God's wisdom says, be faithful and honor me. Trust me, maintain integrity and character. There are no shortcuts to holiness. Maybe you're in a struggling marriage. It's a loveless marriage, it's an empty marriage, it's a frustrating marriage. Every day you wonder why you are still in this marriage and the world's wisdom says, listen, if you're not happy, then get yourself out of there. This is about you, it's about your happiness. And then you look to the word of God and you hear the voice of God telling you that you are in a covenant relationship and you are called to a selfless love to spend yourself for that other person regardless of how they're treating you and regardless of the outcome and regardless of the recognition or lack of recognition you may receive, that you may receive. And God gives you a choice. Maybe it's in your parenting priorities and you're looking at your life and you're hearing the wisdom of the world which says that you exist as parents to live for the happiness of your children. Your goal is to give them a better life than you ever had in every regard. And then you look to the word of God and you see the word of God calls you to make disciples of Jesus Christ, to raise your children in the knowledge and instruction of the Lord. Your greatest goal in life is not their earthly happiness, it is their eternal happiness. Or maybe you're a student and you're wrestling through the peer pressure of life. The world says be popular, do whatever you need to do to be liked by others, but God's word says choose purity, choose to honor me, choose to follow me and believe that that will be better for you. 
may be like all of us, simply struggling with temptation towards sin. The world says, if it feels good, do it. The word of God says, confess it, forsake it, and flee from it. When God speaks, are you willing to listen? It is an act of grace that God would intervene in our lives in any way. But I want you to see that in the the sovereign act of God's intervention, you cannot remove the human responsibility. God always calls people to choose to obey him, to choose to humble themselves before him. Yes, it is his grace that reaches into our lives. It is his grace that enables us to do this. But our responsibility is never stripped out of the equation. There is tension there and mystery there that is hard to grapple with but it is there nonetheless. When I am faced with danger, how will I respond? Will it be God's way or will it be the world's way? They find themselves choosing the world's way and what they find is that does not lead to a better path or a better place, it leads to greater distress. So thirdly, when I'm in distress, what will I try? When I'm in distress, what will I try? Verse 13 says, now when the south wind blew gently, Supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of a small island called Cotta. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. And after hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sardis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. And since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands." I mean, they are in dire straits right now. Things have been escalating and progressing from difficulty to danger. Now they find themselves, listen, in an unbelievable distress. You know, God's way leads to peace. Do you believe that? Do you believe choosing God's way will always lead you to peace, regardless of what it may appear on the outside? The world's way leads only to distress. When you choose to go the route of the world, you will find that it does not offer the peace or does not, sorry, give you the peace that it offers. It cannot deliver on its promises. Sin never does. Sin overpromises and underdelivers every time. Distress, by the way, is an internal response to the difficulties and dangers of life. The difficulties and dangers are often the external circumstances. The distress speaks more to the internal turmoil. And you can see as as things begin to get worse on the outside, there there is a fear that is driving them in their hearts. The the storm tossing them to and fro, they begin to try whatever they can to try and save themselves. Distress happens when we do not respond properly to life's circumstances, when we choose our way, not God's way. Like anxiety, listen, distress is the result of trying to control what God can only control. Distress really is simply anxiety on steroids. It's panic attack territory. It's pressure has mounted, poor choices have been made, things are unraveling, you know, your deep breathing exercises simply aren't working.
They are fear-filled. And so often life can be like this for us in our own distress. We are fear-filled as we are violently storm-tossed. That's what's happening here. The failure to listen to Paul and the failure ultimately to listen to God has led to disastrous consequences. But listen, here's the key. Where you go and what you try in your moments of distress can either help you or hurt you. They can lead to great progress and triumph or they can lead to great pain and tragedy. They do here what they're supposed to do in one sense. They begin to jettison their cargo. They begin to lighten the ship with a hope that somehow they won't be sunk by this violent storm. But what you need to see is what they try simply does not work. I think the key to really understanding this is found in verse 19. Did you notice what it says there? After they jettisoned the cargo, it says, On the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. That emphasis there, I think, is very intentional by Luke. They, they used their own hands to try to come up with a solution to the problem. They try to solve the problem themselves. When in distress, you know, we can try all kinds of different solutions. We can often find solutions that help or we think should work, but in reality, they do nothing more, listen, than dull the pain, deflect the problem, and damage the person. I mean, just soak in that for a minute. Here's what happens when we find temporary worldly solutions to divine problems. All we can do is dull the pain. We run to things that help temporarily dull the pain. Because let's, let's face it, none of us enjoys pain. If you do, you have problems. And so we want to dull the pain, but, but, but the problem is, is that solution ends up wearing off and, and the, the, the dullness begins to evaporate and the pain is still there. In fact, it feels deeper than ever. Worldly solutions often simply just deflect the problem. You know, you know it's kind of like, you remember that game, you go to Chuck E. Cheese and you play the whack-a-mole game? You hit one mole and it just pops up another place. That's what happens when we try to deal with our sin in the world's way. Right? We may be kind of hitting it a little bit, but it just pops up in another area of our life. And we go after it over there, and it pops up in our life over here. You see, we never deal with the root issue of the heart. We deal with the surface-level issues of our sin. And ultimately, if you just follow that progression... It leads us to damaging ourselves, damaging the person involved and the people involved in our lives. Listen, if we don't deal with sin God's way, it always does more damage. We never remain neutral when we choose worldly ways of dealing with our sin. Do you realize that? We never just stay the same. We're carving ourselves out more and more when we choose worldly solutions. That's why the pain, you know, that, that's why people have to jump from one solution. You know, this is the, this is the pattern too with things like substance abuse or, or pornography. You see one thing that works. You begin at a certain stage and, and that begins to wear off so you need something more and deeper. And, and once you're done with that, you're still left emptier than before. And so you go after something even deeper than that. And, and this degradation of sin, this progression of sin, it is horrific because it simply just causes us to decay from the inside out. I'll hear people sometimes in frustration, and listen, I'm so 
empathetic in many ways and, and sympathetic to, to the hearts of people who I'll sit with people who are in such pain and they've been wrestling with things for so long and they're so confused and they'll look at me sincerely in the eyes, tears in their eyes, and they'll say things like, I've tried, I've tried God's way and it didn't work. tried reading my Bible. I've tried to pray. I've tried to get, get involved in the church. But let me just encourage you. Maybe, you're, maybe that's you, and you're, you're in this place of just total distress, and you don't feel like God's way is working. Can I encourage you? Listen, God's way works. It simply does. The problem, listen, the problem isn't with his ways. If it's not working, it's not with him There is that the, the, the problem lies. It is with us. If God's ways don't appear to be working, the flaw is not in them. It is in us. It, it is our, in our approach, our attitude, our perspective. It is in our application of what God has called us to do. The flaw is with us. God's way always works. The things, the means of grace he offers to us are the things that he promises to use to change us. I find often, too, that people are so quick to throw in the towel on God's ways. Maybe you've been there. I know I have. In, in our mindset, so often the speed at which God desires to work is not the speed at which we want him to work. We want a quick fix to our sin problems, don't we? Or to the pain and trials of life. We have a fast food approach to our sanctification. Just give it to me quick. You're like a magic pill, magic bullet that's going to just solve my issues. And so often God's way is, no, 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 you need a long obedience in the same direction. You need to consistently follow me. And you need to see that over time, as you faithfully do what I'm calling you to do, even when it's hard, even when you fall down, when you get back up and you start pursuing the things I have told you and promised you will change you and heal you and fix you. Listen, over time, God, you, God, God you, you believe this in your Christian life, God wants to build into you a persevering faith and a persevering faithfulness. We're so short-sighted, though, in our pursuit of holiness and sanctification. Don't throw the towel in. God's design is to for us to persist with patience, faithfully following his prescription and allowing the trial that we're in, allowing his word that he's given us and his spirit that he's given to dwell within us and his people that he's provided to encourage and exhort and comfort us to do its work within us. But instead of doing things God's way, we will often try to do things with our own hands. We try to throw the cargo overboard we try to solve divine problems with human solutions. We try medication and substances and sex and pornography and entertain ourselves to death, trying to numb the pain of life. We pursue wealth or career or exercise more or try to, or obsess uh, about our bodies or our families. And all of this simply leaves us empty. The distress doesn't go away, it gets worse. The progression of pain moves from difficulty to danger to distress, and it lands us in a really debilitating place. It lands us into the pit of despair. So when I'm in despair, the question is, where will I turn? When I'm in despair, where will I turn? I want you to look at the utter despair they are in in verse 20. Verse 20. 
It says, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Stop there. I mean, that's it. I mean, it's, we're in total darkness. The storm is still raging. We've tried everything we possibly can, and, and we had hope. We thought we could get through this, but now we're throwing the towel in. We've abandoned all hope. This is a place of total and complete despair. And sadly, this is a place that many people, both within, listen, and outside the church get to. They've hit rock bottom here, haven't they? Just utter rock bottom. Some of us have hit rock bottom so many times we could have a career in geology. But you know what? You know what? Listen, rock bottom is often the place where we meet God and his grace the most powerfully. In verse 21, Paul speaks as since they had been without food for a long time, this is so devastating, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Listen, 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 look up here for a second, listen. Whenever someone is in total despair, I think Paul serves here as a fantastic model. Simply utter the four most life-giving words the world has ever known. I told you so. Don't do that, please. Please don't do that. <laughs> but you know, that's not really what Paul is doing. It, it is and it isn't, okay? So, so bear with me here. You know what Paul is doing here? He is reminding them um, of God and his sovereign kindness and grace. He, he's wanting to remind them in a very subtle way, listen, that God has been a part of this whole process, that God has been trying to get their attention, that God has been watching over this whole situation and that they've never been very far from his sight. Every step along the way, in one sense, God has offered his help, and he's done so primarily through the Apostle Paul, this prisoner and servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. They've never been far from the grace of God. No matter how hard life was, no matter how devastating the circumstances, no matter how deep the sin and rejection, God's grace has always been within reach. Paul is telling them that there is still hope. No matter how deep the despair you may be suffering through, listen, God's grace is not very far from you this day. No matter how deep the despair you find yourself in, listen, even this morning, if it has been caused by your own foolish sin, even if you have made an utter and complete mess of your life because of the decisions you have made, all is not lost. In fact, right now, maybe in the lowest point of your life, like these sailors, you are actually most prepared by God to respond to his love and grace. You see, it's here in the, the depth of Despair that we are stripped of all of our pride, all of our self-sufficiency, all of our sense of self-adequacy, 
everything has been ripped away. We are naked and bare. Only God could help us. Only God could save us. It is here in this place of being at the rock bottom that you discover that there is nothing you can do where everything you have tried has utterly failed. It is here that you realize that God stands with open arms, ready and willing to embrace you if, if you turn to him. Verse 22, Paul says, yet now, look in that moment of despair, yet now I urge you to take heart. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. Now, I think this this reminds us, first of all, listen, that, that even though this is the great and mighty apostle Paul, an angel of the Lord has to appear to him to give him comfort because he is at a point of despair himself. He is beginning to wonder, God, are you really gonna be faithful to do what you said you were gonna do? I thought you were going to get me to Rome. I thought that's what you had called me to. I thought you were sending me to the end of the earth to proclaim the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But now we're here, Lord, abandoned many days without food. There is no hope. Even Paul, I believe with all my heart that Paul was wrestling through the reality of what was happening here and an angel of the Lord, in God's grace, he shows up and he speaks to Paul powerfully, sends a messenger and he gives him comfort and encouragement. He says, don't worry, I'm gonna do what I said I was gonna do. And let me give you some details just so you know. You're safe, all of these people are safe. The only thing that's gonna be lost is this ship. Paul says, take heart. God has spoken. Listen, church, do you realize those are the very same, that's the very same reason that you and I can take heart every single day of our lives? Regardless of what you're facing, regardless of the trials, circumstances, difficulties, dangers, despair that you're in, listen, the reason you can take heart is because God has spoken to you through his word. God has promised. God is faithful. Your situation is not past the point of no return. So abandon hope in yourself and instead place your hope in God. The psalmist says in Psalm 42, both verses 5 and 11, repeat this refrain in Psalm verse 42. It says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So when you find yourself in the progression of pain, moving maybe from difficulty, danger, to distress and even into despair, what will you do? Will you respond in faith? Maybe some of you today need to respond in repentance. All of us likely need to respond in gratitude and praise. For our God says to us each and every day that we walk with him, take heart. 
for he has not and he will not abandon us. He will see you through, he will hold you fast, and he will carry you home. And when we respond properly, believing and following him, as we'll see next week, safety, security, and salvation awaits. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we marvel at your sovereignty over all of creation. We marvel, Lord, over your providential care of this universe, but most specifically and importantly, Lord, we marvel at your providential and sovereign care over us. Lost sinners, Lord, who have shipwrecked our lives in many ways, who have tried the ways of the world, who have continued, Lord, to live in many ways in rejection and rebellion to you. But God, the cry from your word to our hearts is take heart. Lord, we have a God we can hope in who has revealed himself to us through his word and by the power of his spirit. And Father, we need only to look to you to find everything we need. So God, as we navigate this journey of life and this journey of following you, Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, we pray, Lord, that you would encourage our hearts, Lord, that you would lift our eyes up to you, Lord, that you would turn our shoulders, Lord, in our gaze away from the circumstances and the difficulties and the pain and the sorrow, and Lord, that you would focus our gaze upon Jesus Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith. God, we want our hearts to be stirred even in this moment We want to be like Paul, Father, who, as a servant of Christ, faithfully followed you wherever you led. Let nothing deter us, Lord, and by your strength and by your power, because of your grace, Lord, would you give us everything we need. It is our humble declaration to you that apart from you, Jesus, we can do nothing. So, Father, take us humbled, broken, insufficient, totally inadequate individuals, Fill us, Lord, with the hope of Jesus Christ, the power of your spirit, that we might follow you to the ends of the earth. We pray this in the powerful and precious name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. Let's stand and let's sing together.